Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to talk tonight about forgiveness. Jesus, I don't know what you think about Jesus, but he's arguably, I think it, it's, not, it's not really disputable. He's one of the greatest religious teachers that ever lived. Um, Christians believe he's more than just that. Um, but whether you believe he's more than just a good teacher or not, you should at least be interested in what he teaches. And tonight we're going to look at what he teaches us about forgiveness. About forgiveness. A pretty important topic. And yet a topic that different societies look at really differently. I, w- I was just thinking, you know, um, if you've ever been in a traditional society, um, you know, maybe some of you come from small towns, you know, the issue of forgiveness sometimes is, is really slow to happen. Sometimes it doesn't happen very much. That's the kind of culture that the Bible uh, is written out of. So, for instance, you know, some of the things that really would have shocked people in the first century don't shock postmodern college students. But in the first century, the idea that the prodigal son gets forgiven would have been shocking and scandalous and upset everybody that heard Jesus talk about that. Now, our culture is very different for the most part. We don't tend to think of sin as something that is unforgivable. We tend, in our postmodern world, to try to eliminate the idea of sin, to say that, you know, who can say what's really right and what's really wrong, and therefore try to eliminate the, the, really the need for forgiveness. And yet the fact is, you can talk about how, no, you know, how, who do, how do you know what's right and what's wrong all day long, but you still come face to face with the fact that if you relate to people, you need to know and understand and have some ideas about how to forgive. It's not enough to try to pretend that sin doesn't happen because every one of us experiences the need for forgiveness all the time. And Jesus deals with actually both of these ideas, with the idea that, well, if somebody's wronged me, I shouldn't have to forgive them. To that he says, forgive and to the idea that there really is nothing to forgive because there is no actual right or wrong. Different people have different standards of what's right and wrong. Jesus goes so far as to say, rebuke your brother if he sins against you. Jesus is not a postmodern pluralist. He thinks that there are things worth rebuking people for. And yet, he also calls us to forgive in a really outrageous and kind of scandalous way. Now, let's look at this passage, Luke chapter 17, and it's, it's interesting. Some, some of the kind of Bible scholars that look at this passage say, well, really, Luke here has just kind of thrown together a hodgepodge of various teachings, kind of like the Proverbs. But I think actually when you start wrestling with all of these things in Luke 17, they really do make sense why they go together um, and how they, each of them contributes important things to our understanding of forgiveness and how it comes about. Let's look at this passage in Luke chapter 17, start at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone, which is this big, huge stone that has a hole in it that could go around your neck, with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. So Jesus starts out saying, watch out. Do not be one of those people who causes little ones to sin. And then he goes right into this. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, 
and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he, that is the master, thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, I'm not going to say something about this, so I'll just point it out now. Um, A lot of times people say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. That was the early Christians that sort of fostered that upon him. He never claimed it. But you know what's going on here at the end of this story? The, the, the NIV kind of obscures this a little bit, but in the Greek it's very clear that the Samaritan comes and prostrates himself before Jesus, worships him. It's a word used for worship when it says he fell down and gave him thanks. It's a word used for worship. The leper who's been healed falls down and worships Jesus, and Jesus does not say, get up, you blasphemer, I'm a mere man and a good teacher. Instead, he says, where are the other nine? They should be worshiping me as well. So don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. He claimed it in so many different ways. And accepting worship and criticizing people that didn't worship him is just one of those many ways. But we're going to talk more tonight about forgiveness. Now that story actually connects to forgiveness and helps us understand Um, how we can find the strength and the resources to forgive. But before we dig into this, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do ask you to help us as we try to understand this passage. Somewhat difficult to understand, but much more difficult to believe and obey. And so we pray that you would help us to believe that you are wiser than we are, more gracious than we are. We thank you that you are more merciful than we are. And we pray, Lord, that you would use even this passage, even this message tonight, to help make us more like you, more patient, more forgiving, more merciful, more bold, more courageous. We ask this in your name, Jesus, and for your kingdom's sake. Amen. I like C.S. Lewis, the great English author, said this one time, everybody thinks forgiveness a lovely idea. Until he has something to forgive. You know, sometimes they tell you in seminary, in preaching school, 
you know, that, that before you launch into your sermon, you're supposed to introduce the topic so that people will feel a need to actually hear what God has to say. I don't think you really need to do that tonight. I don't think there's a person in this room that hasn't wrestled with either the need to forgive or feeling that people have needed to forgive them. Every one of us deals with this if you have any kind of relationships whatsoever. Now, we have different ways that we try to, to, try to avoid obeying what Jesus says here. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that helps us to understand what, what is Jesus getting at here is to, to look at what is the goal of forgiveness according to Jesus. And I think the way you get at that is by looking in verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus links two ideas which we tend to not keep together. But he links together the idea of rebuking. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So Jesus says we need to do both of those things. And when Jesus says we need to do both of those things, what he helps us to understand is the goal of forgiveness is not merely forgiving a person and restoring peace to a relationship, nor is the goal of forgiveness merely getting stuff off your chest if you're upset with somebody and things that they've done. The real goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil. This is why, in the very next section, after what I read, in verse 20, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And the NIV, unfortunately, doesn't translate this really well. It says, Jesus says that, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. Actually, the Greek structure, it can't mean within you like in your heart in some mystical way. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, if I am here, the kingdom of God is here. Forgiveness has everything to do with the kingdom of God. And you see that when you see the goal. The goal is to stop the spread of evil. Jesus came not just so that people could go to heaven when they die. He came to stop the spread of evil in this world. The Christian understanding is that God created a world good, sin entered into it, and sin has spread. We can think of it as, as, as Satan's parasite kingdom, seeking to, to leech off of what God has made beautiful, to twist it and to distort it. But God has not given up on the world He made. He's not given up on the people that He has made. And forgiveness is central to the idea of his kingdom, not just so that you and I can get along and go to heaven when we die, but so that the spread of evil could be stopped. That's why Jesus links the two ideas of forgiving and rebuking. It's not that Jesus just wants a group of people that follow him who pretend that sin doesn't exist, like many southern churches. Jesus Jesus did not have in mind producing southern churches where people go around and pretend that they're not hurt or that nobody's ever offended them or everybody's nice to everybody. No, Jesus' kingdom vision entails rebuking, calling sin, sin, and forgiving. Both of those in a radical way. The goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil in the other person and in you. Now, Jesus does not call us to what I've heard described as peace-faking or peace-breaking, but peacemaking. Peace-faking is what I've described a little bit. Peace-faking is the kind of forgiveness where you pretend, oh, I'm not hurt. It's okay. You haven't, you haven't hurt me. And, and then you go and you tell your friends how this person has hurt you, and, you know, and then you slowly drift away from them. 
That's peace faking. You pretend that there's peace when there's been a, a real problem, a real hurt. And yet you pretend that you've forgiven the person because you just kind of put a smiley face on. That's peace faking. Jesus is not interested in that. If that's what you're after, your goal is not the same goal as Jesus. Your goal is your own personal peace. But Jesus' goal is bigger than that. That's why he says, rebuke your brother if he sins against you. He doesn't say, pretend that he didn't hurt you. Pretend that nothing wrong happened. So peace faking is not what Jesus is after, nor is peace breaking. Now, peace breaking, I, I fall more, we tend to, by our temperaments, tend towards one or the other. A lot of Southerners tend to be more peace fakers. People like me from the Northeast tend to be more peace breakers, right? To, more on the side of, I want you to know what you did, you know, I'm going to make sure you, that you pay. I'm going to punish you in various different ways. I, I, you know, I'm much more apt to rebuke somebody than I am to forgive them. It's easier for me to do that in, in, in my own strength. But again, you know, what is, what is your goal when issues arrive? If, if you're one who never confronts people, you have, to, you have to wrestle with what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' goal is a community in which rebuking and forgiving take place all the time as a regular thing. That's the community he envisions. That's the community he died for. But if you're somebody who never confronts, then your real goal is not love, but your own selfish peace. Similarly, if you're somebody who takes, and I use this word carefully, who relishes enjoys, looks forward to the opportunity to rebuke people, then your real goal is to punish rather than to bring healing and see the kingdom of God move forward. The goal we are to seek in extending forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil, not just to tell people off and get it off our chest, not just to end the chaos and restore what we would call peace. And that you know, brings us to the, sec- the second point, to really rebuke somebody in a way that brings healing, that brings peace, that is an expression of love, you have to care more about the kingdom of God spreading and advancing against the gates of hell than you do your own comfort and kingdom. You want to know why forgiveness is difficult. You want to know why rebuking people is difficult. It's because we don't care about the kingdom like we should. I'll be the first to admit it. Now, you know, Jesus at one point promises that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the church. And I hope you understand that gates are a defensive weapon. You don't attack people with a gate. And the picture Jesus has is that the kingdom of God is on the move. It's moving forward. And there are places and pockets where hell still reigns. Trying to keep back the kingdom of God. Extending forgiveness, rebuking sin is about a taking, taking on the kingdom of darkness where it exists, particularly in our relationships. And so if you're going to be about this work of, of rebuking and forgiving, you need to care more about the kingdom advancing against the gates of hell than you do about your own peace. Because often where the kingdom needs to advance is into your own life and the darkness of your own life and the places where you would rather God just left alone. Leave me alone, God. I know I don't like the fact that this relationship has broken down, but I can find some other friends. 
I don't want to, I don't want to have to forgive. I don't want to have to confront this person. But Jesus' goal is that the kingdom of God would go into those areas. Forgiveness is vital for the kingdom to move forward because forgiveness is vital for evil to be stopped in its tracks. If forgiveness doesn't happen, then evil just continues to multiply and fester and breed. And I hope you, I want you to see that because I think too often we think about forgiveness as just our own personal issue. And a lot of times we weigh whether or not it's going to help my life, make my life more comfortable or less comfortable. And when we think about it that way, we really are thinking it in very selfish terms. Forgiveness is Jesus' plan and Jesus' agenda for his kingdom. It's not just a good idea for how to make your life more comfortable and more workable. And unless you know that, you will not. You will not live out the kind of forgiveness that he's calling us to. Because I guarantee you that when you're only looking at your own life, you will often find places where you're saying, I am, I am willing to accept the loss of this relationship rather than the pain that forgiveness is going to cause. But Jesus says you don't have the right to do that because to do that is to fight against his kingdom. It's not just about you and your own comfort. And you have to know that, I think, if you really would take seriously what he's saying here. What else do we learn um, about forgiveness? Look at verse 4. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day, like, come on, seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Jesus said a similar thing in Matthew. And at this point, Jesus, you know, Peter, when, when Jesus says this sort of thing, he says, gosh, how many times do I have to forgive him? And you remember Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. In other words, Jesus says you have to forgive him again and again and again and again and again. What does that teach us? It teaches us something very important, especially in our therapeutic culture. It teaches us this. Forgiveness is not primarily a feeling. It is an action. Jesus does not say you have to feel warm fuzzies for this person seven times in a day. He says you have to forgive him. As a matter of fact, I think the way he presses the issue makes it really ludicrous to think that what Jesus is saying is forgiveness is a feeling. Because how can you make your feelings, you know, go to the place that we call forgiveness over and over and over again in a day? Particularly because you may be, you'll probably be thinking that this person keeps doing it and keeps coming back. How sincere are they, really? In verse 4, when Jesus adds the words, in a day, he shows us that forgiveness can't possibly be a feeling. He also shows us, though, in this passage, that forgiveness is not based on performance or the other person's sincerity. Because if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and comes back seven times and asks for forgiveness, how sincere can they really be? Now, you may say, well, what do you mean that forgiveness isn't dependent on the other person's performance? Because it seems to say in verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. If he, forgive, if he repents, forgive him. And yet verse 4 seems to present a situation where the person isn't really very serious about repenting because they do it seven times in a day. How do we make sense of this? 
And I think the answer is to, to bring in some things that Jesus said about forgiveness from another place in the Bible. Over in Matthew 11, Jesus says, forgive, period. He doesn't say, if your brother repents, forgive. He says, forgive, period. And, and what I think is going on there is Jesus, what, what Luke 17 is about is about reconciliation, extending forgiveness between people. Whereas Matthew is saying your heart attitude needs to be forgiving, period, whether the person repents or not. Yet for reconciliation to actually happen, repentance is, is an important part of it. I think that's the way to make sense of this. In other words, you know, in Matthew 11, we learn that forgiveness in your heart is required whether the person repents or not. Because Jesus does not put the qualification there, forgive if he repents. He says forgive, period. But here, what you have in Luke 17 and also in Matthew 18, which is very similar, and maybe you've heard, Matthew 18 gives even more details about if someone sins against you and you go to them and they don't repent, then you are to take somebody with you and go back again. If they still don't repent, then you're to take the matter to the church. More details, but the same basic idea here is in Luke 17, where Jesus is not just saying, forgive from the heart. He's saying, here's how forgiveness works itself out in relationships. And so what the, the point of all this is, you are called to forgive from the heart. The forgiveness from the heart command of Jesus in Matthew 11 is absolute. And yet, here in Luke 17, we see that extending forgiveness is connected to this person repenting. Forgiving from the heart is required, but communicating that, bringing that about in the context of a relationship connects to this idea of repentance. And yet, you are not allowed to determine whether or not you think the person's repentance is sincere before you extend forgiveness. Now, the issue of trust is a different one. And, you know, I'll just throw that out. I won't necessarily talk about it a lot, but I will say this. Granting forgiveness is not the same thing as trusting this person in the same way that you have before. It is appropriate for trust to be earned. But Jesus does not say that repentance or forgiveness needs to be earned. He doesn't. In other words, for you to be able here, let me say it this another way. The forgiveness in your heart that Matthew 11 calls for and requires is presupposed in the directions and the instructions that Jesus gives us here in Luke 17. When, when he says, if your brother sins uh, against you seven times in a day and comes back to you and says, you know, I repent, forgive him. He's assuming that you already know you have to, you have to forgive him. And he's saying, here's, here's how you do it. You have to do it over and over and over again. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? What is forgiveness then? And here's the important thing you need to understand. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, is the acceptance of a debt. The Greek word used here is translated sometimes let it be or consent. In Matthew 18, it's translated as forgive. It means this, to assume a debt. And here's the point. To forgive, somebody has to pay. For forgiveness to happen, somebody has to pay. To forgive is to assume or to take over a debt that exists. So that means when you're called to forgive somebody, the first thing you need to do is you need to admit and own up to the fact that you've been robbed. 
that you've been harmed. If you have something you need to forgive somebody for, don't pretend that you haven't been robbed. You have been. You'll never be able to forgive the way Jesus calls until you are able to assess how much you've been robbed. What does this really cost me? Now, a lot of people feel, well, that's not very Christian. That's not very... No, to forgive, you have to deal with reality. The reality is you've been robbed, and you have to understand, how have I been robbed? But then, second, you have to pay the debt. First, you have to understand what is the debt that's owed, and then you have to pay it, rather than requiring the other person to pay it. Granting forgiveness means committing to paying the debt yourself rather than requiring the other person to, say, to pay it. You have to grant forgiveness before you feel it. Repentance, or forgiveness is not feeling warm fuzzies for the person right away. It's not forgetting that this person wronged you. A lot of Christians think forgiving and forgetting are the same thing. It's not true. Forgiveness is an action. It's taking on, it's committing to pay. And when you fail, you repent and you say, God, help me to keep my commitment to pay. Now, we're going to talk about this. You can't do that. You can't do that unless you believe that you're so wealthy that you have the ability to pay. And I'm going to get to that later. But understand right now, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the acceptance of a debt and saying, I commit to pay for this myself. And it's a real debt but I will pay for it myself. Someone has to pay for forgiveness to happen. Now, we don't, we don't like that. We don't like to take on the debts ourselves. We try to make other people pay all the time. I mean, maybe I'll describe some of these ways, and maybe some of this will ring true with you. Sometimes we're cold with people. We withhold affection. We withhold our smile or our good, good you know, favor to make people pay. We want them to experience loss. This has cost me, and I want you to know it. I want you to feel what this has cost me. So I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to be cold with you. Sometimes we try to shame them by being really nice to them. Sometimes we're cold. Sometimes we're extra nice to make them feel really guilty, which is a way of saying, I'm more self-righteous than you. doesn't matter how you've hurt me. I can just you know, shower you with love and kindness, but it's not love and kindness. It's really, it's really hate. Sometimes we're very demanding with people. Sometimes we slander them. And in Christian circles, we love to share, you know, concerns. I have a concern about this sister, you know, maybe, maybe you can pray with me about this, but we really are slandering people because we want them to pay. Sometimes we actively seek to hurt them and screw up their lives, often we just secretly root for their failure in our hearts and rejoice when difficulties come into their lives. But Jesus says that we are to forgive. That means we have to pay on the debt ourselves. That means that we have to be cordial and warm, extending the love of Christ to this person made in His image, even if we don't feel like it. That means you don't let them to continue to sin against you either. That's a whole other aspect of this. To love somebody involves rebuking them and, and calling sin a sin and not just letting them continue to sin against you. 
It means to affirm and praise them to others, to pray for them and to will their good. And Jesus says, you can do this and you must do this. You say, where does he say you can do this? Well, he says it here in verse 6. The people, you know, the apostles, here's so interesting, right? They hear this. They begin to understand what he's saying about forgiveness. They ask, you know, they ask him, you know, in, in uh, Matthew's account, they ask him a question to clarify. Jesus, do you really mean that we have to forgive over and over and over and over again? He says, yes, not just seven times, but 70 times, seven times. And the disciples say, whoa, <laughs> increase our faith. How can we do that? We don't have the resources. We need more faith if we could do that. Interestingly, Jesus does not say, you're right, you need more faith. He says, if you have faith at all, you have what you need. Now, that's really interesting. And I think a very important point, because we live in a a world where a lot of Christians teach this really crazy, blasphemous, heretical idea that what really matters is that you have the kind of faith that never doubts, and you have absolute confidence, and the stronger your confidence is, the more you'll be able to get what you want from God. And, and some people actually look at this passage and say, well, what the disciples are asking for here is this supernatural gift of faith so that they can do miracles and wonders. But Jesus says, if you have faith at all, you already have what you need to be able to forgive the way I'm calling you to forgive. He does not say... The problem is your faith is weak. You need more and more faith. You need to wump it up somehow. He says, if you have faith, you have what you need. How how does that make sense? Well, Jesus is teaching here that if you have true faith, it has the power to do the impossible. And, you know, I'll throw this out to you because I think it's helpful to know. The mulberry tree that Jesus is talking about here, in the Middle East, the mulberry tree that, that is being spoken of here is regarded as a tree that won't die for 600 years because it has this huge root system. You wouldn't want to try and dig one of these out of your yard. If one of these, you know, it's like these, um, oh, I forget, we've got these, these silly trees that, that, that yeah, who cares? No, not the apple, what? You know, well, the hackberries, they're horrible too, but no, these, uh, they, they look almost... Um, Samoa trees, I can't, I can't what they call. yeah, those. I can't get, anyway, they just spring, you just can't get rid of them. The roots just seem, you know, anyway, or like dandelions. That's what this is. The, so he's saying something that to everybody that knows this tree, this is clearly ridiculous and impossible, that you could tell this mulberry tree with this root system that's so immense that people thought it would live for 600 years to just throw yourself in the sea and it would do it. Plant yourself in the sea and it would do it. But Jesus, that's what he's saying. If you have true faith at all, whether you have a little bit or whether you have a lot, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is it true faith or not? If you have true faith, you have the ability to forgive in remarkable, miraculous, astonishing ways. You believe that? You believe that? Maybe the problem is we don't understand what faith is. We think of faith as sort of our confidence, But faith is really not that. Faith is, um, well, I I ran across this illustration of it uh, today that I thought was helpful. N.T. Wright talks about faith as a window. And I I I thought this was really helpful. He says, faith is not, what what matters is not whether your window, you know, is is six inches high or, 
you know, big, huge, you know, plate glass window. What matters is, who do you see when you look through that window? Do you see the real Jesus? The key is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Do you see the real Jesus? And that's actually where this passage goes next. Jesus says, look, they say, increase our faith. He says, if you have faith at all, you have what you need to do miraculous, remarkable things, like forgive in this sort of way. And then he goes on, and he actually helps increase their faith by teaching them two very important things about who he is and what he's done for them. And, that, and that's where we go here. Um, turn it over. We've got just a couple more points on the back here, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through these quick. But we started a little late, so give me, give me another five minutes, all right? How does Jesus increase their faith? The first thing he does, he teaches them about humility. Through this parable. So this, this is a challenging parable. The parable says, no matter what you think you bring to God, no matter what you think you contribute to his kingdom, at the end of the day, you're an unworthy servant and everything you have is because of grace. And it's really important that you understand that if you would be able to forgive. Because one of the big barriers to forgiving people is feeling superior to them. When you feel better than somebody, you can't really forgive them. All you can really do is pity them. Jesus says that you're to think of yourself, I'm to think of myself not as a king, not as a judge, but as a servant. And as long as I think of myself as the king and the judge, I will not be able to forgive. I will not be willing to pay. Because why should I pay? I'm the king. I'm the judge. But when I see myself rightfully as a servant, as one who is dependent upon God's mercy for everything I have, it really changes the way I look at other people. Not only that, but what you need to see is Jesus himself. You can't look at this parable of the servant without seeing Jesus himself reflected in it. Because Jesus is the one who lives this out beyond what anybody else has ever done or ever could do. Jesus is the one who says, my role, even though I deserve all heaven and earth, are mine, I made them, I deserve them, yet I will give up all of those things and come, leave my glory aside, take on the role of a servant, and suffer even to death on a cross. This is Paul's letter to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is himself the servant who actually deserves to be king. See, the, the great irony is we put ourselves in the place of kings and judges all the time. We don't deserve it. Jesus deserves to be it. He is the king of kings. He is the judge of judges who takes on the role of a servant and serves us even dying for us. Now, when you understand that, you see, Jesus doesn't just model being a servant for us and says, come on, guys, you can do it. Jesus actually sets you free from needing to be a king and needing to be a judge. Because after all, why do you feel such a need to be a king and make others pay? It's because you don't believe that the king you have cares or is powerful enough to take care of you. So Jesus comes and says, don't doubt the king who became a servant, who lived and died in your place. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to make these people pay. 
You have everything you need. I lived in your place. I, the one who deserved all of heaven and earth, gave it up. I gave it up so that you, so that you could have the resources to be able to pay. What does the Bible say about the resources you have? What did Jesus gain for you by becoming a servant? He gained everything. That's why the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. What does Christ inherit? What does Christ own? What does Christ deserve? Everything. And he gives it all to you. Don't you think you could spare a little? (laughs) Of course you can. But when when you forget what he's given you, forgiveness will never happen. So he teaches that you don't need to be a king. You don't need to be a king. Your king became a servant for you so that you could find your rightful place as a servant and be set free from trying to be a king all the time. And you know, of course, when you're a king all the time, you just almost invent reasons to be offended. (laughs) You find that you have to, you know, just everybody seems to owe you. Because you just, you know, we talk about people that have a chip on their shoulder. Feel like something's missing, but, you know, and, or something, you know, that, that, that everybody owes them. God, Jesus says, no, you owe me everything, and I've paid it. Second, second point, he teaches them about being cleansed. Not only do you have to be humble to forgive, you also have to see yourself as clean and beautiful in God's sight to forgive. And I, I don't know if, if, if you know this, but, you know, he has this story about these ten lepers. And it's interesting, Luke includes this story, this healing story, in the middle of a teaching section, which is kind of strange. But he does that in a couple of other places in his gospel. Whenever Luke does that, he intends that story to illustrate or to strengthen the point that he's making. And I think it works that way here as well. Not only do you need to be humbled, you need to embrace the teaching of this parable, but you need to be, you need to see yourself as the leper who's been cleansed. The leper who has been cleansed. In other words, Jesus Jesus has cleansed you if you're his child. If you follow Jesus, one of the things that the Bible teaches, that means that he's cleansed you. He's made you beautiful in God's sight. And unless you believe that, you will not be able to forgive other people. Whatever, Whatever you're counting on to make yourself beautiful in God's sight or in the sight of other people, if somebody attacks that, if somebody robs that from you, you will never be able to forgive them. But if you recognize that Jesus has cleansed you and there's nothing that anybody can do to make you ugly in God's sight ever again, then you can forgive. In other words, if you don't think that you really have anything in you that makes you desirable to get friends, and yet you think that you know, the most important thing is to get friends, if somebody rejects you as your friend, Boy, you're not going to be able to forgive them. In other words, if you're, if, you're, if you're saying, what really makes me matter is that I'm a good friend, and then somebody rejects you and says, no, you betrayed me, and it's all, maybe it's all a lie and it's not true, and they've wronged you, it's going to be very difficult for you to forgive them. If somebody wrongs you and robs you of the thing that you're trying to trust in, you will not be able to forgive them. 
If, if, if you're counting on your romantic desirability, for instance, and people reject you, man, how will you forgive them? The only way is if you understand that Jesus has made you more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And who cares what these people think? Come on. Gain some perspective here. The king of the universe says you are beautiful in my sight. I can't, I can't wait to be with you. And, and that, has to, that has to change things. So what I'm saying is, Failure to trust in the righteousness of Christ, putting your trust in any other thing for your righteousness or for your, for your beauty, will always prevent you from forgiving people. So, do you, see, do you see the connection? Unless you understand and embrace the cleansing that Jesus gives, you won't be able to forgive people particularly people that rob you of the thing you think you have to have to be beautiful. Well, how do you, how do you well, practically, why does this matter? It, it, matters, it matters this way. You have to, if you, if you know this, if you understand what I'm saying here, you have to know, well, how do I nurture this then? Because here's what I'm saying. Your ability to forgive is connected to whether or not you're trusting in Christ for righteousness or you're trusting in yourself. If you're trusting in yourself and somebody threatens that thing that you're trusting in, man, you are going to make them pay. You have to make them pay. You don't have anything else. You've been robbed of all you have. But if Jesus is your righteousness and somebody robs you of your, of your reputation, well, who cares? I don't need my reputation. I have Jesus. I don't need a girlfriend. I have Jesus. I don't need to be rich. I have Jesus. Now, I I know that can sound like super spiritual nonsense, but you have to get the truth of that into your heart. You have to nurture it. You, You have to regularly thank the Lord and praise God for what He's given you rather than continually sitting in Oh, I wish I had this. If only I had this. You have to sit in and worship the Lord and thank Him for what you have. To remember that Jesus became a leper, an unclean, untouchable person. You know, the ten of them, they have to stand at a distance. Lepers in this day and age had to yell to everybody, Hey, leper's coming. Get out of the way. And Jesus lets them get close, doesn't He? Invites them. And says, the rest of them should be here, right at my feet. Jesus is the one who invites lepers to lay down at his feet so that he can touch them and cleanse them and heal them. Over and over again in the Bible, Jesus makes the point that our trouble forgiving people is connected to our lack of believing he's forgiven us and really understanding what that means and being blown away by it. It's one thing to say, well, I know I'm a Christian, so I know I'm forgiven. It's another thing to be able to sing with Charles Wesley, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So there's a difference between confessing that as true theology and having that be the heart cry. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need one another. That's why we sing these hymns. 
saying, Lord Jesus, make that truly our heart cry, because only when that is our heart cry, only when we're more blown away by what Jesus has forgiven us from than we are by what we have to forgive, will forgiveness actually function in our community. Two last, last points. Forgiveness is costly, but it brings healing. And again, you have to know how fabulously wealthy you are in Jesus to know that you can afford whatever it pays to cost to forgive. And finally, this point. You may think that forgiveness, some people are like, if I forgive this person, then they're going to win. Because I know they're not sincere, and I know they haven't learned their lesson. But listen, to forgive does not mean the other person wins. To forgive means Jesus wins, and his kingdom goes forward. I'm not saying easy forgiveness, where rebuking isn't part of what's going on. Sometimes you need to rebuke, and for some of you, what you need to go out of here and rebuke your brother and your sister. Now, I don't say if you, if you relish it, do, don't wait until you really don't want to do it and then do it. That's, that's always a good test. If you're excited about rebuking somebody, well, then wait. Or Jesus says, look at the log in your own eye. And until you see that, that there's a log in your eye compared to the speck in your brother's eyes, you're not in a position where you can help anybody. But... Don't fall for the pluralistic, relativistic gobbledygook that that keeps us from actually giving life-giving rebukes to one another. The body of Christ needs that. The kingdom of God needs that. And the kingdom of God needs forgiveness, real forgiveness. Jesus is big enough for this. He says, if you have faith, you have the ability to do this. So let's pray. Jesus, we do... We thank you, but Lord, even as we consider your words here, we say, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Lord, we believe, and yet so often when we think about forgiving people, we take stock of what we have in our own strength, and we conclude that we just don't have enough. So I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see what we have in Jesus to see what it really means to have this righteousness, this beauty that's been given to us, that we didn't earn, that's been given to us, that allows us to say, what do I need all these other things for? I can afford to give them up. But Lord, until we are really convinced in our heart of hearts that you are who you say you are, that you've done what you say you've done, that you've given us what you say you've given us, until we believe that, Lord, forgiveness is not going to be the mark of our community. And so I pray, Lord, for a revival of the reality of the forgiveness of the gospel that's been extended to us to come into our midst with power that we could be a community that forgives and a community that has the courage to deal with sin because we know that you are a God who is big enough to deal with sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.